You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Zoe Griffith. Today we're joined on the podcast by Professor Elias Mahanna. He is Manning Assistant Professor of Comparative Literature at Brown University, a scholar of classical Arabic literature and Islamic intellectual history. Uh, he's also active in the digital humanities. And in addition to publishing in various venues such as The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Nation, he's the author of Kifa Nebki, a site dedicated to news and commentary on the Levant. Elias, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So that's a long list of qualifications, but today we're going to be speaking about one specific thing, which is a medieval compendium that Elias has recently translated. It's entitled, The Ultimate Ambition in the Arts of Erudition, a Compendium of Knowledge from the Classical Islamic World. Uh, the author is Shahab Adin and where and it's published by Penguin Classics just this year. So in today's podcast, we're going to introduce the text a little, this uh, compendium, explain what a compendium is and what its purpose was and learn about the author. Uh, And then we'll be giving the audience uh, a chance to hear some snippets of uh, what they could expect uh, in this text. And joining us to read those snippets on the podcast today is uh, my current Harvard University colleague, uh, Nora Lesserson. She's a PhD candidate at Harvard. Nora, welcome back on. Thank you. You'll be hearing Nora helping to read some of the excerpts from The Ultimate Ambition in the Arts of Erudition, followed by commentary by our guest, Ilyas Mahanna. So I think all of us have at least taken a course in Islamic history in the U.S., if not also taught one. I I know I have Zoe. I know you probably have, too. Uh, And one of the things I'm always struck by when trying to think about structuring these courses is there really is a lot in translation if we're talking about classical or medieval Arabic stuff, but it's a lot of the same stuff. So it's hard, like as a social historian or cultural historian, to to get variety of uh, primary sources to, say, bring um, the texture of uh, Islamic history to life. Ilyas, I think uh, your translation of The Ultimate Ambition in the Arts of Erudition fills a niche and provides another example of a new type of uh, genre that might uh, contribute. But I, I wanted to ask you why you thought we need a translation of al Nawairi's text, why you wanted to bring it to light, and uh, what it contributes uh, to our understanding of uh, the Islamic world. Well, I think that there is a lot of work in translation, and it, it increases every year. So that's really great to see that there's more and more Islamicate materials um, available for university courses. But one of the features of the medieval uh, Islamic literary world is the is the presence of a lot of encyclopedic literature. Mm-hmm. And there isn't a whole lot of that available in translation. So I wanted to produce something that gave the reader, the modern reader, a sense of just how varied a single mind could be, a single bookshelf could mm-hmm. be, in um, in the medieval world. And so it wasn't just that uh, someone knew a, a single subject really well. More often than not, a learned individual would know a little bit about a mm-hmm. lot of different things. And so 
um, I was hoping to kind of capture a little bit uh, of that ethos in the form of a of a compendium, which is just a fancy way of saying a collection, uh, an encyclopedic text mm-hmm. that brings together material from lots of different disciplines. And Noweri's text is actually quite long. Uh, how long is the original? Uh, 31 volumes in manuscript. So it occupies a whole bookshelf, essentially. Mm. It's more as my dis- one of my um, advisors in graduate school uh, said to me when I proposed that I work on this book. He said, it's not really a work. It's a library. Yeah. Um, and he's right about that. It, it really is a library unto itself. So in the modern edition, it's 33 volumes. So over 30 volumes in, in any case. And was it, was it much copied in its day or, or throughout the ages? The reception of the work is interesting. It was... It was copied, but because of its size, it wasn't usually copied in toto. It was mm. um, copied in part. Mm-hmm. And so people who were interested in a given subject would usually choose a certain volume and say, I want, you know, I want the material on uh, pharmacopial remedies mm. or I want the material on the life of the scribe and stuff. So it did have a, a, a fairly extensive reception in, in the later Mamluk world and in the Ottoman world. And then it be- things become very interesting once it enters Europe. Mm. Well, that's an interesting cliffhanger, and we'll come back to that point in just a second. But first, let's introduce uh, the author, Nuairi, uh, because he's an interesting figure. I mean, you, you say that he composed, he's, a, he's a mid-level bureaucrat, basically, in the Mamluk state. Maybe you can briefly tell us mm-hmm. about the Mamluk empire, for those who are less informed like myself. And, uh, but you say that he wrote this work as, quote, a kind of personal project of self-edification. So tell us about Nuairi and his world and his purpose in, in the compendium. Nuairi is a great example of somebody who was not a genius and he was not someone who produced a huge amount of work. So for all of it's us... a terrible recommendation. <laughs> letter, yeah, for, for all of us who are you know, not um, incredibly gifted, um, he, he's, he represents a kind of a learning, uh, an everyday man yeah. learning. One thing he was very good at, clearly, was he was a very fine calligrapher. He was very good at uh, keeping things organized on his bookshelf. And he was obviously very ambitious. He wanted to produce something that could uh, serve as a guide for his own um, travels in the landscape of uh, classical Islamic learning. So he was born at the end of the 13th century in Egypt, uh, which was then under the rule of the Mamluk um, Sultanate. And for you Ottomanists out there, the Mamluk Empire is the polity that existed, um, that ruled over Egypt and Syria from the mid 13th century, from about 12, uh, from 1250 to 1517 is when we kind of um, set the dates. And it was eradicated by the Ottomans Mm -hmm. who invaded um, and, essentially destroy the Mamluk Sultanate at the beginning of the 16th century. So Nuaidi was born uh, in 1279, I believe, and his family seemed to belong to this class of bureaucrats. They were clerks. uh, They worked in the chancery. And he, at a very young age, rose very high in the Mamluk Empire's bureaucracy, probably through some kind of family connections. And so what did he do? He traveled to Damascus, and he was essentially a financial scribe. When we think of the the, uh, the bureaucracy 
in the context of, of the Islamic world, we think of the great scribes of Baghdad under the mm-hmm. Abbasids, the people like Ibn al-Muqaffa and Ibn Qutayba, the ones who essentially created the whole adab literature. And we yeah. think of them as very elegant um, people, individuals who spent all their time composing beautiful prose and poetry. Anuaidi was not that guy. Anuaidi was a financial secretary. So he was essentially a glorified accountant and he had a chip on his shoulder about this. He spent his time surveying agricultural yields and uh, looking over the, you know, the, boi- the boilerplate legal contracts for endowing charitable like wakfs, basically, mm-hmm. and overseeing the properties of the sultan and being a hospital administrator in Cairo and being a college administrator in Cairo. Uh, the Nasiriya Madrasa and the Bimaristan al-Mansuri were under his control. So he was basically a manager and he had a serious chip on his shoulder about the erudition and the, and the real elegance of the chancery because the chancery was sort of the sexy place to work if you were going to be a scribe. But um, at, during Anuadi's time, things were shifting and the chancery was no longer as important an institution as these financial scribes who had tremendous power. Mm. So nonetheless, it had cultural cachet, the chancery did, and he, he just felt that his real calling was in literature, you know, and he wanted to acquire that, that, um, that erudition. And so at some point in the early 1310s, he left his job and uh, set about composing this huge work. How long did it take him to write this encyclopedia? He started around... 1314, probably something around there. And um, he was working on it until his, his death. So and he died in 1333. So okay. almost 20 years. Mm, it's kind of like a dissertation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and he and and I mean, one of the interesting things about this text and you, you pointed out in your introduction, uh, it's it's not the work of one person or the worldview of one person or the cosmos of, say, a medieval Arabic writer, at least not just it's actually gathering knowledge from centuries of sources from different places and, and often contains uh, direct quotations from those sources. That's right. It's not a, an encyclopedia that contains only documentary evidence from his own existence. It, it is really a distillation of centuries and centuries mm-hmm. of knowledge and you know wisdom and authority that go back, not even only from the Islamic world. And so that that's why it can be a little bit disorienting to open up this work to the entry on Cairo mm-hmm. or on Baghdad and expect it to be um, a, a kind of documentary, full of documentary eyewitness testimony about his worldview. And instead you find him talking about all the stuff that happened centuries earlier. And you, from a modern perspective, that's frustrating because we want mm-hmm. encyclopedias to be full of objective knowledge about, you know, things that are closer at hand. But for most examples of encyclopedic literature in the Islamic world and, and beyond in Europe and China, um, in, you know, in the classical world in Rome mm-hmm. and Greece, the, th- these kinds of compendia were more often than not collections of, of, uh, of just authoritative knowledge that, you know, we would consider to have been long to, to, to basically have disappeared or knowledge that was no longer valid. And, um, you know, a great example that I often uh, point to is there is something there's something along the lines of how the dolphin answers to the name Simon. And that is a (laughs) that's a that's a factoid that had been in 
medieval European compendia for centuries. Mm. So if you go back to the medieval world, you look up dolphin, the dolphin answers to the name Simon. If you call out Simon, the dolphin will come. And that mm. stayed in encyclopedias all the way up through Diderot. Mm. And they just, because they couldn't shed it. They couldn't, they couldn't lose it. And so you find that kind of stuff in Noeti. to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Zoe Griffith and Nora Lesserson talking to Elias Mohanna about his recently published translation of Shahabuddin Nuwayri's text, The Ultimate Ambition in the Arts of Erudition. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com for a link to that book where you can hopefully pick it up. It's very affordable. I own a copy myself. And we'll also have a little bibliography on uh, Mamluk history and other relevant subjects. So Elias, in the introduction to the text, you make a really interesting point that kind of justifies what you've done to it, which is uh, cut it into a tiny piece, abridge this work to make it accessible for the audience. Uh, but the, the point is that it wasn't meant to be read from cover to cover. That is to say, the reader would read selectively based on their interests. So before we read these excerpts, and we will be hearing quite a few colorful excerpts, tell us about how you selected the material. Is it a representative mix or what were you really looking for when uh, going through the text? I was trying to give the reader as wide a sample of the text as possible. So that meant uh, choosing really short excerpts from as many chapters as I could get to, rather than longer excerpts from fewer chapters. So there's inevitably a distortion, a distortion when you apply that kind of a method. And there are enormous, enormous swaths of the encyclopedia that are just missing from the translation. Like... Most of the historical portion of the text is missing because there is just no way to really abridge a topic as enormous as the life of the Prophet Muhammad or the history of the Abbasid Caliphate hmm. in a matter of a couple, you know, pages. So I decided to, you know, err on the side of more diversity in the top in the in the subject matter, and um, I was aided in that uh, by the fact that a Nuwaiti was a fastidious and enormously uh, anal compiler. <laughs> he was a lot of a lot of encyclopedists um, produced enormous texts because they just couldn't. They just kept adding and adding and adding, and yeah. they didn't do a whole lot of organization. Whereas Nuwaiti knew exactly what he was doing from the very beginning. He organized the thing, the whole thing, beautifully, and was so anal about his subdivisions mm -hmm. that. He often, he uses a system of cross-referencing. So whenever he would arrive at a section in his discussion of a given topic that he felt was starting to veer off into uh, an area that didn't belong in this particular subchapter, he'd say, if you're interested in this subject that's related, you should pick it up in that place. Mm -hmm. He'd say, so check that volume under that subchapter heading, and you'll find a discussion of that. For example, he would say in the chapter on the elephants, he starts to talk about uh which generals were famous for using elephants in the mm -hmm. course of war. But he felt that that was a subject that really belonged in the history section. So he'd say, in order to pick yeah. up this, the, the, the study of, or the discussion of the subject, check out this particular chapter. Mm. So you've, you've preserved more or less his, his organization, or you have preserved his organization of the encyclopedia, uh, abridging the historical section most. Um, 
what are what were the parts that that you wanted to give sort of in full as much as possible what's what's what are the more enticing parts for you i was interested in his treatment of um animals and plants i found those to be really interesting um i also really uh, was drawn to his section on on the mamluk bureaucracy and the and the structure of governance which is Mm. um you know like the pre-modern state it's the officialdom that uh, that was really the machinery of state is not often taken seriously in mm-hmm. you know before certainly before the ottoman period in mm-hmm. the ottoman period we have this idea that that's when you know the full you know impersonal state agencies emerge and that's when mm-hmm. we get real really intrusive state agencies that can function as institutions and even then it's so much is about the the charisma of the leader and so much of it is about social action and and, and social bonds and communities and you know, that's really where we first see like a culture of kind of, of uh, officialdom and documents emerge. But that's not the, that's not the picture that, that one sees in a Nuwaiti's document, a Nuwaiti's encyclopedia and other encyclopedic texts that came out of um, the chancery at this time. It really does seem to have been a so-called paper state mm. where, uh, you know, documents were everything. And yeah. in order to get appointed or fired or you had to have documents and right. um and documents were even a check on the on the on the authority of the mamluk mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. sultans which was really a military oligarchic class right. you know that held all the all the means of um you know they had a definitely had a monopoly on violence and um and even they had to really uh kowtow to the um the kind of accrediting powers of the uh, the scribes and the um, and the scholars, and there's a sense in this organization that you're starting out from a kind of cosmic view and then coming down through the realm of the state and the animals and the plants and the world and then sort of human experience. Is that organization uh, Anuiri's own uh, sort of con- conception of the way yes. things worked? Okay, yeah. that wasn't like a. No, that was his typical. He had organized it. Oh, it was a typical for I mean, the was, time. Yeah, was was yeah. that an encyclopedic? Tradition? That's a good question. Um, it definitely was not the way to organize an adab encyclopedia, which mm. is kind of interesting. Um, that that's not how things tended to be organized. It, what it seems to have more in common with was a tradition of cosmographical encyclopedia. Mm. encyclopedias Mm -hmm. so that's something else that makes this work interesting is it was kind of like a hybrid from many genres Mm. um even though he insisted that it was a work of adab Mm. and even though 70 percent of the work is devoted to history so this was actually a time where a lot of these genres were totally in flux and Mm. and the boundaries between different kinds of genres were breaking down like what do we mean by adab as a as a genre in the medieval period well, that's a difficult I mean, question briefly. to answer. Yeah. <laughs> so adab, you know, in the modern world, adab means just literature. And we tend to think of adab as, you know, it can be novels, it can mm-hmm. be poetry. In the earliest sense, adab, uh, when it first emerged as a, as a term, it really had the idea of like custom or mm-hmm. uh, social rules and ancestral precedents. And, and it was about behavior, like someone's adab, someone had mm-hmm. good adab or bad adab. And then it, it developed a, a larger sense of like um, the adab of certain professional groups, like the adab of the judges or of the, mm. of the scholars or of the carpenters mm. or whatever, the, the kinds of things that made you that belong to that professional class. But by the 10th century, 
um, Adab had acquired this um, much, it had much more in common with a kind of um, an ideal of well-roundedness. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, it, it was it drew quite close to the um, Greek um, concept of enkikleos pedia. So like essentially having a well-rounded education, mm-hmm. which is then becomes the basis for the, the, the European notion of like the encyclopedia, basically. Mm. So the the so-called paideia, uh, which was, you know, everything that a literate person should know, um, that's really what Adab is about. So it's not far off from a, a liberal arts view of uh, exactly. education, for yeah. example. But by the Mamluk period, Adab uh, has become, like all kinds of things have now made it into the mm. Adab category that we're, we're not even, we're not in it even under the Abbasids where okay. it was already quite capacious. Okay. So let's hear some examples uh, from the work and probably a little bit later on we're going to hear some maybe uh, intriguing and humorous uh, even uh, texts to the modern ear. But let's start off with uh, Nuweri uh, describing uh, his own world really. The section entitled On the Management of the Sultan's Treasury. Nora, take it away. Okay, so On the Management of the Sultan's Treasury. Integrity and trustworthiness are the mainstays of this position. For the treasuries of kings in our age cannot be fully inventoried due to their size, abundant contents, and the immensity of their treasures. Were a scribe commissioned to prepare an account of the financial revenues of the sultan's treasury for a single year, he would have to be appointed solely to this task for the year, in its entirety, without working on anything else. By the time the account was complete, at the end of the second year, and corrected by the secretary of the treasury during the third year, its anticipated benefit would have long passed. Furthermore, the Secretary of the Treasury would have neglected the receipts of the third year, having been occupied with the first year's bookkeeping. So I, I just love, I love things having to do with administration because it, <laughs> they give you a sense of just how similar their world was to ours. Right. You know, they, they had to do bookkeeping. They had, you know, there was like due diligence and it yeah. was a really difficult job. You're in charge of this um property that is receiving gifts all the time mm. and tributes from yeah. provincial governors and random things. And you have to keep track of it because you have to make sure the chancery can send out letters thanking the people who sent the gifts out. And you have to keep track of who gave what last year and how much it's changed this year. And it, it, it became a question of, it really has to do with governance and control, yeah. you know, the imperial state's ability to control its um, tributaries and, and its vassals. And and that requires like somebody who can really stay on top of, um, you know, the bookkeeping. Yeah. Uh, that passage has a really authentic ring to because, because he is a, you know, a bureaucrat. Exactly. Yeah. If there was a, I don't know, if there was a, a Coen brothers film about a, about a, an accountant or something, this would be like the opening monologue with that sort of (laughs) like real taste. So, now we're going to hear another excerpt, also sort of arising out of, uh, not the bureaucratic realm, but rather the legal realm. And I mean, a, a document that is actually quite valuable uh, to historians, but intriguing in its approach to the subject. Uh, it's an example of a marriage contract. Go ahead, Nora. So an example of a marriage contract. If a man who is mute and deaf marries a woman who can speak, the contract should read, quote, here is the bridal dowry that so-and-so, there's a blank, 
the mute and deaf man has presented to so-and-so, his proposed wife, being of sound mind and aware what is legally required of him, communicating through gestures that are understandable by his witness and impossible to deny by anyone who observes him. Upon agreement, the contract should conclude, quote, the husband indicated his assent to the contract through understandable gestures. And if both husband and wife are mute and deaf, the contract should read, quote, here is the bridal dowry that so-and-so has presented to so-and-so, each of them being mute and deaf, sound of mind and vision, aware of his or her legal responsibilities, having made that clear through gestures which the witnesses of this contract understand. If the husband is a eunuch, the end of the contract should read, quote, the wife knows that her husband is a eunuch who is not capable of sexual intercourse, and she consents to him. All right. So <laughs> another great example of, you know, the levity and the charm of, of a document that is so dry, but apparently necessary. This, there was a need for this kind of thing. Deaf and mute people got married, yeah. and, and they, they had rights and responsibilities that had to be enshrined in a legal document. I mean, the part about the marriage to a eunuch, though, is also very interesting because, I mean, I don't really know that much about conceptions of sexuality and marriage in that time period. I, f I found it surprising that that's in there at all. Yeah, eunuchs are uh, a fascinating category, particularly in this in this time. Um, and apparently, you know, this was, I guess what he was envisioning was a scenario where a woman would have fallen in love with somebody or, or not, or there's a marriage of convenience of some mm -hmm. kind, but uh, recognizes that he would not be able to provide her with children so that she has to kind of, he needs some protection so that she can't divorce him on that basis. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton with Zoe Griffith and Nora Lesserson talking to Elias Mahenna about his recently published translation of The Ultimate Ambition in the Arts of Erudition, out from Penguin Classics. We've just heard a couple examples from the text of um, bureaucratic and legal uh, discourse that's reflected uh, in Nuweri's compendium, but it also includes a lot of curiosities that we might expect to uh, read about in such a work, in, in, in including stuff about animals, both uh, real and maybe semi-real or f uh, fantastical. So, um, Nora, maybe we could uh, read a, a section of the description of uh, the panther. So one of the panther's strange qualities is that a person bitten by a panther will attract mice who seek out the person in order to urinate on him. If a mouse succeeds in doing so, the person will die. People take great care to guard those who have been bitten by panthers, for a mouse will do its best to seek out the wounded person. One of the most amazing stories I've heard is that a person was once wounded by a panther and took great care to protect himself from the mice. He got into a boat and went out into the water, thinking that no mouse could reach him. It so happened that fate, whose decree is unavoidable, determined that a kite snatched a mouse from the ground and flew into the sky, and when it passed over the wounded man, the mouse urinated on him and he died. 
So, I mean, even if that happened just once, I think it's worth mentioning every time you read about a panther, right? Right, like, exactly. It's a pretty incredible story. So this is, this is an example uh, of the, the, the whole, like the, the dolphins answering to Simon. This is a story that has been associated with the panther probably since Aristotle. I didn't actually check on this one, but a lot of the, the bizarre, fantastical things that he has to say about uh, real animals came into Arabic from through Jahiz, uh, I mean, from Aristotle via Jahiz. So mm-hmm. a lot of the, these things actually have been around, had been around for centuries mm-hmm. and it came from Greek and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and they could just never shed them after a, like a couple millennia. They just, they, they continued to appear in these works of natural history. Um, I don't know if this particular one did come from the Greek, but it's, uh, it's interesting that, that these encyclopedias basically hold on to these logia, basically, that just continue mm-hmm. to circulate. Mm. Where this becomes most evident in in the case of animals is uh, that is in the the chapter on the hippo in Nuaidi's work where he he describes the hippo in in that kind of edifified or natural historical way that has a lot of mythological material, but he also describes the hippo elsewhere in his section on in his um, section on history, um, and you can tell just from the the two descriptions how he really conceived of, of, of the hippo in a drastically different way when he was talking about it from a historical perspective. So it's, it's more evidence that, you know, they could hold multiple contradictory views in their mind at the same time. And uh, one did not elbow out the other. Well, the variety we encounter in this text uh, is one of the reasons why I think it is worth, you know, publishing in this accessible format in English and also in an affordable uh copy that could be used with undergraduate classes because it really does have so many different applications for different perspectives on history. It's not just one narrow uh, look at the past. And we encourage our readers to check out the book and see what's in store. There's a little something for everybody in there. And um, since we have to just limit it to one more uh, excerpt, we've chosen uh, something to give maximal enjoyment to the maximal numbers of (laughs) listeners. It's a recipe for a medicine that produces indescribable pleasure. Go ahead, Nora. All right. Take two mithkals, each of dried and toasted fennel seeds, pepper, long pepper, ginger, pellitory, Chinese cinnamon, nutmeg, wild caraway, and hardened sugar, and combine them after they have been ground and sifted. Dissolve the mixture in fennel water or basil water until it becomes as thick as oil. Leave it to refine in a sealed glass bottle for 10 days and shake it three times each day. Then spread it upon the penis and leave it to dry, at which point you should have sex. Aspire to have the ointment dissolve dissolve during intercourse. Be sure not to leave the bottle open, for the air will weaken the medicine's potency. No woman will be able to resist any man who uses this remedy. Well, I can't speak to that last sentence, but I do want to put the disclaimer that we do not want our listeners to... uh try any of the things that they find in this compendium mm-hmm. but Elias what, what do you make of this uh, particular uh, passage I mean there's men there's a lot about sex in this uh, compendium there's a lot about sex and and Nuedi, uh usually with the things that he tried or the things that he va- could vouch for he would say this is this has been tried and I've, I've tried this I don't think he says anything about the sexual ones but he does have a recipe for a kind of uh, breath freshener that will remove the smell of alcohol off of your breath. 
And he says, you mm-hmm. know, one of the things that is terrible about alcohol is that basically it makes you stink and, and people can smell it on your breath and then it leads to scandal. So there is this famous recipe that if you, you know, grind up all these different things that have like mint and stuff and you, and you swish around with it, it will remove the smell of alcohol from your breath. And he says, this is true. This is, <laughs> and, and what's interesting is it, that recipe and his admission that he basically has tried it and therefore that he has that he has had some alcohol to drink comes right after a lengthy discussion of all the the terrible things that will happen to you if you try alcohol and how it's completely (laughs) against the law in Islamic law, according to all the different schools and everything. And then he says, by the way, this works. So, you know, um, that's a compendium of knowledge. Exactly. So you have to have multiple perspectives, right? Multiple perspectives and it totally embraces contradiction. He didn't see it as a problematic to admit that he had tried out this thing. Mm. Welcome back again to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton, Zoe Griffith, and Nora Lesserson here with Elias Mohanna talking about the ultimate ambition in the arts of erudition. We just heard a musical clip recorded, not performed, but of course recorded uh, by our own guest, Elias Mohanna. We mentioned all of his credentials at the beginning of the podcast. And in addition to that, he has an interest in music uh, and film. So Ilyas, tell us about this very special and unique sort of historical recording that you have here. This recording is of two very uh, distinguished and masterful uh, performers from Lebanon, uh, Sharbil Ruhana on the Oud and Samir Sablini on the Ney. I made this recording in 2003 when I was living in Beirut, and it was uh, recorded initially to serve as uh, part of a film score that I was working on. And it didn't end up making it into uh, the film, mm. but um, I think it's just a it's an in- incredible example of what two musicians um, who are at the height of their powers can do when you just get them into a room. And there was no practice, and there was very little. There was ab- absolutely no uh, post production work on this. It was entirely. Um, you know, it was just a little bit of prompting and description and discussion with them, and they just kind of went at it and. Uh, that's what it is. Yeah, and it's an it's a the, I mean the improvisation is very impressive and it's a it's a very special recording to be able to have and that we appreciate you 
letting us use it on the podcast. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and so to conclude, actually, I just want to, you know, being that you've been involved in various many things that seem uh, very fascinating, but you've chosen to devote a lot of your life to translating this text, um, which must have had its challenges and joys as well. We've already talked about the bureaucratic levity that you so much enjoy. <laughs> right. uh, I just want to ask, you know, for our, for our listeners, um, I mean, for me, one of the things that comes to mind that might be challenging is that there's sources from so many different authors in this text. But what were some of the challenges or real like um, joys, things you g- really got out of the translation process that uh, might not be evident to the English language mm-hmm. reader? Well, as anybody who has worked with the classical Arabic works, uh, especially in the Edab tradition, uh, will attest, it's just... Um, Tackling anything like this means spending a lot of time with classical lexicographical text, so basically dictionaries, and specialized studies and other encyclopedias to make sense of the, some of the really specialized terminology. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel that I'll be giving back rubs to Ibn Manzur and uh, Dozi and Manfred Ullmann for all of eternity for, for their <laughs> assistance with these, um, with these, uh, ter- some of these terms. And it's not so much only like looking up a word. It's also trying to get a sense of what yeah. the significance of something is. Once you know what it means, that didn't often help. So, um, yeah, there were certain texts that I went back to over and over again for assistance with this kind of stuff. And an encyclopedia will do that to you. It almost sounds like you were stuck in like the medieval Wikipedia clicking around from link to link, Absolutely. getting lost in another like rabbit hole yep. of a compendium. There are at least two or three times more material that I could have put in that uh, maybe if there's ever a second edition, I'd love to add, you know, at least 50% more, uh, you know, to, to flesh out some of the chapters I really liked and to add things that aren't even here. Well, we, I, I anticipate that some of our listeners and the, those who go out and pick up the book and find it useful and uh, enjoyable might uh, look forward to such uh, later editions as well as I understand you're working on actually uh, a more involved analytic monograph uh, on on this work and other literature of the period. Yes. Um, next year, at the end of 2017 or early 2018, um, I hope uh, uh, to publish my uh, study of um, Anuadi's work and the encyclopedic literature of his time, um, which is now under contract with a university press. And um, I hope, you know, inshallah, after uh, I after the whole review process is over, that um, you will uh, have something to uh, contextualize further this um, really amazing uh, genre of literature. Well, we look forward to it and hopefully talking to you again, maybe at that time. Uh, Thanks so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks to Zoe and especially to Nora for uh, doing all those great theatrical readings for us of New Aries texts. Really happy to have you here. For those who are listening and want to maybe pick up the text, The Ultimate Ambition in the Arts of Erudition out from Penguin Classics, uh, just this year, uh, visit our website, oddmanhistorypodcast.com. We've got a link to one-stop shopping as well as a bibliography that will uh, help further fortify your exploration of this uh, unique uh, translation. We want to also invite you to check out Nir Shafir's series on the history of science, Ottoman or otherwise, where this episode appears. There's a lot of great stuff about medieval and early modern uh, learning, uh, especially in the Islamic world and and looking at it in connection uh, with the broader world of uh, early modern learning. Please check that out. 
Uh, we want to also invite you to join the community on Facebook. Over 25,000 fans now commenting and sharing our content is a great place to have high and lowbrow conversations about various topics related to Ottoman history. Thanks for listening. Join us next time. Until then, take care.